0: Here begins our text for this morning. Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only teach the hem of his garment." And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. This is the word of the Lord. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God with the words of Psalm 65, stanzas 3 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We don't know the name of the man who spoke those words to Jesus in the ninth chapter of Mark's Gospel, but I suspect we all know the feeling. Every now and then there are those nagging doubts. Is it all true what I hear in church what I am brought up to believe. Does God really love me? This cross of Jesus, is it really for me? A new heaven and a new earth. Is that really going to happen? Deep down, many Christians worry about questions like this, but they're ashamed about that, and so they don't speak about them. They suppress them, hoping they'll go away. The result is that sometimes There are also members of the church who wonder, am I the only one who actually feels this way? But no, unbelief and faith and faith and doubt, these go hand in hand. The man in Mark 9 is saying it for all of us, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But you see, the the great message of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus doesn't leave us as victims of doubt and unbelief. He has his means whereby faith is victorious for the people of God. We see that in various ways this morning. It's a beautiful text, although not an easy text. People have read an awful lot into it. It's often been allegorized, we call it. There are people who have seen the ship as the church and the waves as the pressures of the world and so on and so forth. And all we need to do then is keep looking Jesus in the eye so that we don't sink in the waters of unbelief. But the story is neither parable nor allegory. It's a story in which real events happen. There was a real boat, and there were real disciples, and the waves were real, and so was the doubt and the unbelief. Well, when we take a closer look at the passage, we get a tremendous amount of encouragement. And so God's Word comes to you under this theme this morning, the Lord Jesus reveals His majesty on the Sea of Galilee. We'll talk about the revelation of the Lord Jesus as occasioned by fear, the salvation of the Lord Jesus as occasioned by doubt, and the adoration of the Lord Jesus as occasioned by faith. So, we'll talk about the revelation, the salvation, the adoration of our Lord Jesus, and these are brought about by way of people's fear and doubt and their faith. Brothers and sisters, sorry to speak about school on a Sunday morning, but when a teacher wants to test the progress of his students, He or she usually does that in a gradual kind of fashion. You don't just spring a final exam on your students. You give them quizzes and you test and tests that will precede the final exam. Well, it seems that our Lord Jesus, the good teacher that He is, is doing something like that in our text. Our our Lord wants to bring His people to the point where faith-wise they are going to stand on their own two feet. He's not interested in developing people who are always dependent on his physical presence. He wants them to just believe even when he's absent. You can see something of that on on, on, on Easter morning. Mary Magdalene, when she finally recognizes the risen Jesus in the garden, she wants to cling to him, never to let go of his physical presence. But Jesus says to her, do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to my father and to your father. Final examination at time has come for Mary, and she fails the exam. Because the question on the exam is, can Mary still believe in the Lord Jesus without having him physically present? No doubt the fact that that is the goal towards which Christ must work in, is being brought home to our Lord here in, in, in this Matthew 14. Because here he hears about the horrible death of John the baptizer. And that death is distressing to Jesus because it serves also as a pointer to him as to what's going to happen to him. If the start of Jesus' ministry has been linked with John's ministry, the end will be as well. Part one of the gospel draws to a close with the death of John. Everything is pointing towards the death of Jesus at the end of part two. And so our Lord receives a tragic reminder of the fact that he too has only a limited time to accomplish his purpose. And so it means it's time for a test. And what better time than this? Surely they will do well on the test. After all, he has spent the day with the crowds who followed him. He's healed their sick. And then in the evening, he did this tremendous miracle. He told them to, to go and get, get food. And he, and he blesses the, the food. And all he's got is uh, five loaves and two fish. And with that, he feeds more than 5,000. And that's just the men the women and children, it must have been quite a crowd. And when they're done, there's more left over than there was to begin with. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. So surely after such an outstanding miracle, the disciples will do well on this quiz or this test that's coming up. They will display trust and faith in the power and presence of Jesus. And so the test begins. In verse 22, we read that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. The exam is compulsory. No one gets excluded. And this is the question. Will they show any confidence in the power of the Lord Jesus? Can they do without him yet? Or will they be weak and cowering without him? And meanwhile, as they make their way to the other side of the lake, the Lord Jesus goes up on the mountain so that he can spend the night wrestling with God in prayer. Realize that's not just some incidental detail. It reminds us again of the one great source of all his power and all his strength, It's not simply the fact that he's a divine that allows him to do all these things. Look at him in the Gospels. He goes again and again to the hills to pray, to wrestle out God's will. If Jesus needed to pray and to wrestle things out with God, don't you think you need to do that too? The secret of what follows of the majestic way in which he later reveals himself on the waters lies here in his prayerful dependence on the Father throughout the first three watches of the night. It lies the secret of what happens in the fourth watch. Even the safety of his disciples is it not dependent on the prayers of our Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is busy with the keeper of Israel who neither slumbers nor sleeps. In him and through him, Israel is secure. But meanwhile, the testing has begun. The Sea of Galilee is notorious for its squalls, which can rise up very suddenly and can be very fierce. This night too, Matthew says, the wind is against the boat and the boat is being beaten by the waves. The word that Matthew uses for this is actually the word torture. The boat is being tortured by the waves. The waves are pictured as harassing the sailors. They are throwing them to and fro. Don't think too lightly about this. Have you ever been in a boat when the wind comes up and the storm clouds come and there are waves that seem to be big enough to swallow up your little boat? Who would not fear Who would not think that this this may very well be the end? It seems that in the case of the disciples, this torture may have gone on for a while, too. for, For Matthew suggests the reason they are so far from land is precisely because of the force of the storm upon them. The disciples are at their wits' end, so to speak. They have been buffeted about for some time. And it's when they're in that state of mind that they see someone walking on the water, and the thought comes to them that it must be a ghost, it must be a a phantom of sorts. Notice what it it says. They were they, they, they were troubled, literally they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. On the one hand, it's not so surprising that they should come to that conclusion for the idea that there were spirits of all kinds and all kinds of sea creatures hidden in the deep was there in Eastern thought and probably also in Eastern fishermen. Besides, even 21st century man is still looking for the Loch Ness monster. And besides, what else could it be? Do you actually expect somebody to come walking on the water? Surely this had never happened before. Besides, the fourth watch is between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning after a mind-stretching evening with the Lord Jesus and a grueling, sleepless night. Is it a wonder that they might think this? It is a ghost. But on the other hand, should the disciples not be stronger than this here? After all, the test they are undergoing here is not a new test. This is a review of material they already covered. We read together Matthew 8, where there was this great storm. The only difference is that then they had Jesus on board. They had his physical presence in the boat. He was sleeping, mind you, but he was there. But now Jesus wants to take them a step further, and he's on the hillside, and they're in the boat. But Noah realizes, well, that Wherever you are in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus probably could see them because all the hills go up from the sea, no matter where where they are. That's the nature of this little Sea of Galilee. But hadn't they learned back in Matthew chapter 8 that he had control over the wind and the seas, even wind and seas obey him. And couldn't they think, does Jesus actually have to be here in this boat for that to happen? Is it not enough for him to be there praying for us? And had they not heard and seen more of his incredible powers, powers to heal people from afar, powers to feed more than 5,000 with a meal for a few, powers to heal all kinds of diseases, surely the storm would not be unnoticed by Jesus, and they would be safe because of him. In any case, the disciples failed to recognize the Lord Jesus And the Lord Jesus had yet another indication that their faith still had great weakness and that he had a whole lot of work to do whatever time he still had left. The teacher has a lot of work to do with the students. And so what do we have here at one and the same time? We have a a test, but we also have a great teaching moment for the disciples. For what is it really other than a, a tremendous revelation of the majesty and even the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ? For who else can do this? Something never done before and never done since. A person walking upon the water and the waters do not swallow him up. And what is more, take notice of the words the Lord Jesus uses when he seeks to calm them. He says, take heart It is I, do not be afraid. Be of good courage. It is I, do not be afraid. Actually, in the Greek, he says, take heart. I am, do not be afraid. Those two words, I am, are special here. Language-wise, they are extraordinary. This is much, much more than just some kind of greeting upon the water. The Lord Jesus is revealing something of his divinity to them. I am. It reminds you of the sayings in John's gospel. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd before Abraham was. I am. In John's gospel, as well as here, we're meant to think of Exodus 3, where where, 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 Moses, where God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. And then when Moses says, who, who am I to say sent me? Then God says, I am. I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. So in response to the disciples who think they're dealing with some kind of ghost, Jesus gives them one of the most splendid revelations of himself ever. In the storm, he reveals himself. Think of the Old Testament. Exodus 19, Ezekiel 1, more often. It's in the thunder and the lightning that God gives great revelations of himself. To meet the awesome God at heaven and earth has to be something that leaves one shaken and in awe. Human extremity is the frequent meeting place with God. In Mark's version of this event, you see another indication of this. It says there that that, that Jesus, walking upon the water, was about to pass them by. And you wonder, why would he pass them by? Why would he make it look like he was just going to walk right past them but isn't that a reminder of how the Lord revealed himself in Exodus 33 and in 1 Kings 19? Moses must be tucked in the clefts of the rock while God's glory passes by. Elijah sees a wind that shatters the mountains and an earthquake and a fire. And before it all, the Lord passed by. So too here. The disciples are afraid. In their fear, they doubt. They fail to live out of faith. All the teachings of the Lord Jesus seem to have come to naught. What will come of the cross? What will come of the resurrection if these disciples don't believe and build this church? So what does our Lord do? He reassures them as never before. Notice it's during the storm. While the waves and the wind are still busy, that the Lord Jesus reveals himself and says, take heart, I am, have no fear. If the revelation of God in the Old Testament is a great thing, this is a great moment in the Gospels. You have to know that in the scriptures the sea often represents the forces of evil because it's powerful and it's uncontrollable and it's deadly. And the people of the East would live in fear of the Mediterranean Sea. Think of the crossing of the Red Sea. Think of the story of Jonah. Think of the words of the Revelation. Tremendous comfort. There is no more sea. (coughs) Well, Jesus controls the sea. He walks on it. He calms the sea. He speaks to it. It obeys. And then you have to know too that in Isaiah and elsewhere in the Old Testament, these two are often side by side. The answer to fear is for God to say, I am. The presence of God is the best antidote to fear, It gives powerful significance to the the presence of God, and it gives powerful significance also to the words of this gospel where Jesus sends out the disciples in the end and says, I want you to go, I want you to go all over the world and make disciples of the nations. And meanwhile, he's going to be in the heavens, but he says, I am with you to the close of the age. The feeder of the hungry in the preceding story is now the divine Lord who walks on water. The social savior is now the sovereign I am. But in both cases, notice, in the feeding and on the water, the church disappoints. In the first, she believes that her surroundings and resources are more decisive than her Lord. Lord, we have only five loaves and two fish. And in this one, she believes the world's winds are more than the Lord's words. And that shows us, brothers and sisters, the first point. What is the best answer to our doubts? We have them. We said that. What is the best answer to our doubts? The greatest, the finest answer is the revelation of God. We need to realize when we're beset by doubts, when we have our fears about the future, when there are situations in which life brings us into great anguish and pain, we are no poorer than these disciples. We have God's greatest revelation in Jesus Christ. When you read the scriptures today, when you hear the proclamation of the word, what is happening? The Lord Jesus is coming to us in the garment of the scriptures, even with his own assurance, I am with you. When doubt sets in, the natural inclination, even the inclination worked in us by the devil, is to withdraw. We doubt, therefore we withdraw. and We read the word less, and we come to worship even less. Study the word and forget it. But you see, would the disciples have believed if if Jesus didn't reveal himself to them? Will you believe if God will not reveal himself to you? if, If this book stays closed all the days of your life? If it's by the word that we are born anew, it's through the word that we are fed and nourished and brought to maturity in Christ. And when the word in that way is an antidote to doubt, it's an antidote to our fears as well. Today, we can have fears. Fears about the future of the world. Fears about the future of our families. Fears about all kinds of things. But what is better than to seek refuge in the revelation of God in Jesus Christ? Somewhere I read about a man who was a sailor in World War I. And from the ship, he wrote home these words. If you should hear that I have fallen in battle, do not cry. Remember that even the ocean in which my body sinks is only a pool in my Savior's hand. Doesn't that say it for us? The Lord Jesus reveals himself here to the disciples. He died, he rose, he ascended, and he sits at the right hand of God. And what does he do there? He rules the world. He rules over land and sea. He governs the church. All things are in his hand. Think about this. The whole world, all in the hands of the one who loved us so much that he gave his life for us. The ocean, only a pool in the Savior's hand. What then are the mountains? What then are all those problems that you're laying awake at night about? Things that are major to us, they are minuscule to him. What he said to his church there in the boat, he says to his church today, take heart, have no fear, I am rules the world also today. We see more of that here, for there is this one fascinating figure in the, in the Gospels, namely Peter. And Peter is always the fumbling, impulsive sort of guy that we can all associate with. There are many who commend Peter for what he does here, but we should notice that it begins with doubt. Whereas, especially fear is what brings about the first miracle, especially doubt, which brings about the second, this event. For Peter, in response to that revelation of Christ upon the water, Peter should have said, it's enough, I believe. If Jesus can walk in the water, on the water, he must be God. If he can do this, he can do everything. But Peter's words begin with an if. If it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. It begins with doubt. If it is you. Not that it's all doubt. There's faith here too. Notice what he says. If it is you, tell me to come. He knows. Power rests in the command of Jesus. Jesus just has to say the word. Faith and doubt are in the balance together. The question is not just just which one can tip the scales more. It's not just help my unbelief. It's also Lord I believe. And think of that. Didn't it take some faith to in Jesus, for Peter to actually get up out of the boat and, and stand up on the water and walk? I, it's beautiful. Peter, the fisherman, the man who all his life had to contend with the waves and, had, and the water is now walking upon the water. The man who all these years needed that fishing boat to make his living, he can do without that old boat. And notice, too, the storm is still raging here. And so there is faith on the part of Peter he leans on the edge of the boat. He brings up the one leg. He brings up the next leg. And then doesn't it take faith to actually try to stand on the water and to be vertical? This is Peter. What is it but a celebration of faith? What is it but a joyful discovery of so many, how so many things are possible in Jesus Christ our Lord? Think of Paul. I can do everything in Christ who strengthens me. That was Peter that day. But where there's faith, there's doubt. Peter begins to sink. He begins to go under. Many interpreters here speak about the fact that the reason for this is the fact that Peter didn't keep his eyes fixed on Jesus. The Bible doesn't say that, though. It says the problem was when he saw the wind, he was afraid. It began to sink. The Lord Jesus gives a diagnosis of the problem. He says it's a matter of doubt. Verse 31, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? The word that Jesus uses there is the word for to hold back, to hesitate. Here, Peter's failure is due to the fact that he holds back in his faith. He, He hesitates to put his complete trust in Jesus. Hesitation betrays a lack of trust. It's striking today we sometimes hear people say that they cannot follow a certain course because they don't have faith enough. The problem is the quantity of their faith. It, it puts people in a quandary, also those who try to help them, for if we accept that reasoning, then there's nothing we can do. Only God can give the faith that's, that's lacking. Then I guess we have to wait for a later day. But that's not the reasoning of the scriptures. You see that elsewhere. The reason we fail is not because God doesn't supply us with enough faith. We fail because we don't use the faith that we have. How often does Jesus not say, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move, and it will move. Mustard seed. This is the smallest possible seed in the East. So too here, Jesus doesn't say that Peter doubts because he's a man of little faith, but he says Peter is a man of little faith precisely because he doubts. Precisely because he doesn't use rightly the faith that he does have. His marvelous walking on the water fails because he hesitates. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What is the Lord Jesus teaching us here? Well, it's, of course, a lesson regarding faith and doubt. One of the great difficulties here is that people who worry, who, people who doubt worry too much about their doubt. A preoccupation with doubt, you see, is a form of constant spiritual introspection in which you spend all your time looking inwardly at your own feelings and thoughts. Doubt is a bit like an attention-seeking child When you pay some attention to it, it demands that you pay even more attention to it until you are entirely consumed with giving attention to it. You get locked into the vicious circle from which you can hardly escape. If you feed your doubts, they will grow until they become like a chain around your neck. What should we do then? We should see our doubt as an invitation to spiritual growth. We should see our doubt as a sign of neglected faith. Is it not so? Whatever relationships you have, before marriage, during marriage, with friends, with family, all of those take work. The truth is, the more intimate the relationship, the more demanding its maintenance. Why should it be any different with our relationship with God? Doubt is a sign that we've neglected our relationship with God. Doubt is a sign that shows where we're headed if we continue to neglect our relationship with God. It's not the sign that's important, it's the disease. That's what it, it's what it points to. Doubt signals the need for spiritual growth, for renewal and consolidation. The canons adored speak about this. We have no confession that is as misunderstood as the canons. We consider them to be cold, theoretical, and, and to be something very heavily doctrinal of no value to us. There was a man who wrote an article doing pastoral work from out of the canons. Delightful article. Delightful canons. They are wonderfully pastoral Chapter 5, Article 11, believers in this light do have to struggle with various doubts of the flesh and do not always feel this assurance of faith, this full assurance of faith. But what's the cure for the illness? Do the canons really say the future is hopeless because you see there's predestination and God only elects so much and God only gives so much faith and that's the way it is? No, the canons wonderfully again and again, Chapter 5, Article 14, As it has pleased God to begin this work of grace, so he maintains and continues and perfects it by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditating upon it, by its exhortations and its threatenings and its promises, and by the use of the sacraments. The solution is look up to God, study his word, get busy, don't feed doubt, feed faith. Be there where the church gathers. Be there where the Christ is revealed. Be there where the scriptures are read and and, and studied and, and see your life transformed by the power of the Lord Jesus. You see it with Peter. When he doubts, when he hesitates, he sinks. The waters rise up to his neck, but he cries out to the Lord, Lord, save me. And the salvation of the Lord is close at hand. The Lord Jesus, there's even a third miracle here. Because what does the Lord Jesus do? He reaches out his hand as he causes Peter to walk back to the boat. Notice they don't swim to the boat. So much for that. No, they don't swim to the boat. Jesus stands up and he lifts Peter up by the hand. And Peter stands up as well. And they walk together to the boat. Where there's faith and there's trust, tremendous things happen. What is it that Peter and the disciples are being taught here? They are being taught their complete, their utter need for a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Living with Jesus all these years, they might get the idea that all that's needed is to be with Jesus. With his physical presence. Sometimes it seems it's enough to be with Jesus. Think of the 5,000 who get fed by Jesus. But there in the boat, there in the water, the disciples are being taught what they really need. And what the church is going to need later is a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith through grace. It's not enough to live in the presence of Jesus. It's not enough to be a pupil in the school of Jesus The deepest examinations that Jesus did then and does today as well are not examinations about what we have in our heads, what doctrines and texts we have memorized, but what do we have in our hearts. Where is our heart of hearts with the Lord Jesus Christ? Peter's problem was not that he didn't continue to look at Jesus with his physical eyes. It was he didn't continue to look at Jesus with his eyes of faith. Ultimately, it's not even our faith that saves us. Faith is just an instrument by which we embrace Jesus. But it's the Lord Jesus who saves. Just as we make a mistake when we focus on our doubts, we make a mistake when we focus on our our faith. For one day, my faith is higher than a kite, and I'm strong. The next day, it's buried under problems, and I can be pushed about. The focus must be on our Lord Jesus instead. You need him every day as much as you need him on your deathbed. You need his grace not just to get into the kingdom. You need his grace even to get to the last day and the last hour. You need him all the time. What is doubt other than hesitating to depend on our Lord Jesus and his grace? What is faith other than a reaching out and clinging to our Lord Jesus Christ? This is the way, the great answer. You see that too. Peter reaches out to Jesus, Lord save me. When there's doubt, he sinks. But when he reaches out, the Lord will not let him sink. He never leaves us, nor forsakes us. There's a beautiful text in, in Hebrews 13 where it quotes from One of the Psalms, I believe, and it just, in in, in English, when you have a double knot, it becomes a positive. But in Hebrew, when you pile up the negatives, they become stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's what Hebrew says to the people of God. God will never leave us. He never forsakes us. Those who believe him. It's beautiful, too, we read that when they got in the boat, the wind died down. The wind that raged when the Lord was far away, the wind that raged as Peter and Jesus walked upon the water, the wind finally ceases. And when Jesus and the disciples are safe in the boat, the winds and the sea obey him. Indeed, he is worthy of all our trust. It reverberates all the way until Paul says, in Jesus Christ, our lives are truly secure. And so you come to see, too, the adoration of the Lord Jesus as occasioned by faith. There are more beautiful things here. The great revelation of salvation in Jesus meets with an adoration that grows here. It begins in the boat. The disciples do more than just thank Jesus. They do more than just consider him a magician who can do tricks or a hero who saved them. Give him a medal. Now they worship him. They cry out, truly, you are the Son of God. Those are always great moments in the Gospels. It's the point of the Gospels when finally people worship Jesus. This is the the line, the the plot line of the Gospel according to Mark, For, for instance. At the very beginning of Mark, It's gospel, it's very striking. The demons know exactly who Jesus is and they tell them exactly who Jesus is and what does he do? He tells them to be quiet and speak no more and throughout the gospel they never speak anymore and the big question is are the crowds actually going to find out what the demons know? Are the disciples going to learn what the demons know? And it's not till the end of the gospel on the cross that this Roman soldier is the one who cries out truly This was the Son of God. But Jesus' teaching is not for naught here. Because they're in the boat. And they're saying, truly, you are the Son of God. It's a peak. There's worship here. They are on the mountaintops of faith. They know in Jesus there is God himself. No one less than the Son of God among them. And that momentum grows For when Jesus and the disciples get out of the boat, notice what happens. There are actually three very strong absolutes here. All of which show that faith, faith when it is firm and when it is displayed, makes other people take note of what we believe in. Verses 34 to 36, the people of Nazareth recognize Jesus and they summoned the whole area, all that region, and all the sick are brought to him with the plea that they might just be allowed to touch the hem of his garments. And all, as many as those who touched him, were healed. The lesson the disciples learned in the boat is contagious. It comes through to more people. Jesus is not just someone who's developed a technique. It's not even enough to be in his presence anymore. They long to touch his garment because they know of a dependence on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who is in that garment. Life comes from him. He who touches him will be healed. And so the chapter comes to a wonderful close. Jesus moves on to the goal. The goal of Good Friday. The goal of the cross the goal of the, of the pain and the suffering, and Jesus can move on to it because he sees in his disciples and his students at least some progress. And so this is the way, the way of faith. Doubt will linger to the day of our death, wondering, what about that grave? Will there really be a resurrection where they all will open and everybody will go and... Those who believe will go to be with Jesus. This is the way. Don't focus on doubts. Don't feed them. Feed your faith. Focus on the Lord Jesus. Embrace him with all that you are and all that you have. He who doubts, Jesus' brother James once said, he's probably thinking of this passage, he who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. If you lack wisdom, says James, ask God who gives generously. In and through Jesus, says Hebrews, we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Our souls, they stop bouncing to and fro, for Jesus is the anchor. The Lord Jesus is the one sure point in a troubled and uncertain world. He created the world... By the word of his mouth. he stilled the seas. By the word of his mouth. He will do it again. He will change the world. By the word of his mouth. The trumpet will sound. His voice will resound. And the people of God. All of them. Will be with Jesus. Amen.